Hello there. Welcome in. It's Downtown the Podcast, episode number 85. Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell here with you from the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, where our daily show, Downtown, originates every weekday afternoon from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Zone Radio stations of Maine, streaming audio available at our website, downtownwithrichkimball.com. Brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Well, two interesting conversations coming up on the program this week. Uh, one from author Dan Butner, the Blue Zones guy, who several years ago partnered with National Geographic to uh, look at those areas of the world that produce the oldest people, the highest concentration of folks who've made it to their hundreds. It's been a series of books, the newest, entitled The Blue Zone Kitchen, and some great recipes that maybe can help you live a longer, happier, and healthier life. We'll talk about that with Dan in the second half of the podcast this week. In part one, a friend of our show, the legendary Upton Bell, an NFL executive uh, back in his 30s, a scout, general manager of the Patriots in the early 1970s, a really uh, ahead of the curve sports talk show host before that was a thing everywhere. Uh, in Boston, the 1970s, doing Calling All Sports really kind of invented the genre in Boston radio and television. Author of a wonderful book on the history of the National Football League and his family's close connection to it called Present at the Creation that he wrote along with Ron Borges. Upton joined us to uh, talk about uh, the book, a documentary series they're working on, on the Bell family in the National Football League. Let's give a listen to the legendary Upton Bell. Great to be here. You're giving me a break from impeachment and, <laughs> and the and the investigation of the Patriots. Unbelievable. What's going to go longer? I think the Patriots. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, and, and I agree with you on both of them. I, I can use a break. I've, I've had all I need of either party in both of those cases. You're absolutely right. It's ridiculous. So just go to Netflix. You can get The Irishman. You can get Marriage Italian Style. And, and you can also get Two Popes. That's the escape. Have you watched Two Popes? I've heard very good things about it. I have not seen it yet, no. But uh, they, the uh, latest uh, on the Academy Awards and, and the films that they think are going to be the ones are three of those, and including the Two Popes. And The Irishman is the front runner, although, as I call it, the live and die in L.A. is right up there also. So it, it should be absolutely a fascinating year. Love the movies. Absolutely. I'm with you on that. Uh, well, we want to talk about this wonderful project that you've been working on uh, with Jeff Barnes, and uh, you were kind enough to send along some of the early clips. Jeff uh, works at Arlington Community Media, and they're doing a wonderful eight-part series on your family and the long association with the NFL. And uh, these segments you sent me are just terrific. Well, he, you know, he actually started in Maine, and right. uh, I hope you'll have him on sometime because he covered uh, when Stephen King bought your station and has quite a background there. But he himself has quite a background uh, as an investigative reporter and anchor, both in Philadelphia and Washington, D.C., and other areas. And uh, he approached me along with ACMI about five months ago and said, we're looking to do some type of documentary. Now, that this eventually could be on a major channel somewhere uh, because the whole idea was to take a look at, particularly in the 100th year of my family, 
my mother, my father, and the roles that they played in professional football, and then take a look at the life that I led in the in the early days, and then right through the Colts and through to today. So it's it's quite a saga. It's quite an undertaking, and it's when you have somebody like Barnes who understands what it's like to do, you know, hard investigations and put things together. The first four segments, which you've seen are, are quite interesting. And some of them are very funny. Oh, there are some great stories in there, but I want to go back to the beginning and the fact that none of this, the long bell family association with the national football league would not have been possible without your mother, who was a very successful actress on both stage and screen. Well, yeah, and the interesting thing about her, and it's coming out more and more now, in fact, Frank Fitzpatrick, famous writer for the Philadelphia Inquirer, wrote a long story on her just a month or two ago, and how actually Bertho ended up in football and ended up owning the Philadelphia Eagles because of Francis Upton, because at that time, uh, his father, who was one of the richest men in Pennsylvania, the Attorney General of Pennsylvania, and also second in seniority on the Walter Camp Rules Committee and actually negotiated with Teddy Roosevelt over uh, saving college football. So his father was very, very wealthy, big, big college guy, and had no interest in Burt Bell ever getting involved in pro football. In fact, in those days, it was looked down on. So to make a long story short, he met my mother. She was engaged to Bernard Baruch, the very famous financier's son, she had been discovered actually uh, working behind the perfume counter in Macy's. And five years later, she was a star on Broadway making twice the money my father ever made. They, uh, they eventually get married secretly. Walter Winchell announces uh, the engagement. Uh, they get married in Philadelphia. They walk down to a bankruptcy court. They buy the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets with her money out of uh, bankruptcy. And walking back to the hotel, look up and see a billboard with Frank and Delano Roosevelt's National Recovery Eagle on it. And my father says, that's the name of the team. <laughs> and that is really storybook stuff. That doesn't happen today. I love the story and uh, the piece I saw about your father's pursuit of a talented college football player from Minnesota and how that led to one of the most important changes in the game's history. Well, yeah, because, again, people don't understand today that don't know going back that Bert Bell invented the pro football draft and actually the draft that is used today by every major league. And the only came about, again, by chance, because at that time the Chicago Bears, the New York football giants, the Washington Redskins, and the Packers really dominated pro football because there was no draft. You just went out after the season was over. And you signed, uh, you know, whatever players you want. Well, at, in this case, he had, you know, he was very, very poor, along with Art Rooney the, of the Pittsburgh Steelers, and they couldn't sign those big-name players. So he did uh, make a deal to get on the train and go out to Minnesota to sign a very famous college, or college star at the University of Minnesota and basically thought he had a deal with them. And uh, in the end... Uh, the player ended up with the Brooklyn Dodgers, used Burt Bell as a wedge, and uh, on the way back on a train, which you'll see in the video, uh, he finally decided we've got to do something about it. So he went to the owners' meetings and said, you know what, 
we're only as, as strong as our weakest link. He said, we have no money, the Steelers and, and the Eagles and other teams in the league. The t- league will go broke. Uh, and he got them to institute what is today the pro football draft. And so out, out of the disappointment and losing uh, the player from the University of Minnesota, he ends up inventing the draft. So he, he is really the father of modern pro football. 13 years as commissioner of the National Football League and also uh, steered the league through some of its toughest challenges, including uh, another league, the challenge from uh, another football league, and then a gambling scandal that might have destroyed the whole thing. Well, and that's, let's come back again today discussing all the different things that happened because uh, the night before the uh, the championship game in New York, the Bears are playing the Giants. Uh, Frank Hogan, the district attorney, called my father said, you better get on a train and come up here. I know you were due to come up here tomorrow. Come up today because we think we have two people involved in a gambling scandal. And, in fact, it's interesting because one of the authors that I recommended to you on the life of Sid Luckman uh, gets into that whole thing and how many of the NFL owners at that time were also high-stakes gamblers. The, the New York Giants was owned by a bookmaker, the Maris. Uh, the Steelers' Art Rooney won something like $200,000, $300,000 a day. Even Burt Bell gambled and would go to Saratoga. So, I mean, there's so much history, uh, Rich, that, that goes through this and, and through this whole documentary that we're going to be able to lay out through my family, but the, the experiences I've had, what you're really going to see about what the real lake was and is. We're talking with Upton Bell on downtown. We've chatted about this a little bit before, but can you can you talk a bit about your experiences as a young scout traveling through the Jim Crow South? Well, that's that's going to be the next two. We're actually doing back to back segments called "Race in the South" and the NFL. And actually, when we looked at this whole thing, and I'll be sending you copies of it is that in 1963, of course, that period from the 60s through to the early 70s, probably, including today, was the most violent time in America. Cities were on fire. People were shooting each other. Uh, there was great unrest in race. Uh, two of the Kennedys were murdered. Uh, Martin Luther King and I was there the day that he was murdered in Memphis. Uh, all of these things and, and were churning in the South. And so I started to scout. And in those days, you drove most of the South. So you get in the car in Baltimore, and you would drive from Baltimore, and in my case, from the Colts, where they were, all the way throughout the South, out through Texas, and actually to the coast, to be gone for three or four months. But I remember the first time arriving in 1964 in Mississippi, and going into a restaurant, and I looked like I was 16 years old, because <laughs> most scouts in those days looked like they were 90. And I looked like I was 16, and somebody asked me, what did I do? And I said, I was a scout for the Baltimore Colts. And the guy laughed. And and during the conversation, he said, you know, he said, listen, he said, you know, five years ago, we were still lynching people. And I, I kind of said to myself, my God, what did I get myself into here? And uh, through those years from 64 on in, uh, I spent many times in small towns wondering uh, what, what people, if you couldn't prove who you were, and they thought you were a freedom rider coming from the north, 
I might have found myself face down with Chattahoochee River. And there was danger everywhere. There was fire, firing guns from the, the Natchez Trace going from Jackson, Mississippi to Alcorn A&M. There were many, many things. But what came out of that, Rich, was what you see today. In those days, uh, maybe 5 maybe 10% of the NFL, maybe, was African-American. But when the AFL came in in 1960, they went much more than the NFL into drafting and signing African-American players. But in those days throughout the South, and many of the great places, Alcorn, Mississippi Valley State, Jackson State, Grambling, of course, was one of the great feeders into the pros. Uh, you name them. <clears throat> the greatest players were not at Alabama or Mississippi or Tennessee right. or all the big-time colleges. They were at Alcorn A&M and Southern <laughs> University and those places. To go to those campuses, they were way off, with the exception of Jackson State, which was right in Jackson, Mississippi. You know, in those days, you, you would get uh, drive down the Natchez Trace from Jackson, Mississippi to Alcorn A&M, 200 miles of some of the most beautiful country you've ever seen, but there you could get picked off either by by a police officer who were firing at, at uh, African Americans or vice versa, and it was extremely dangerous and and extremely prejudiced, uh, the likes you've never seen. Yet, when you went to those campuses that had less than anybody at the at the major schools. You'd see some of the greatest players you've ever seen. And I remember coming back many times and telling Don Shula, I said, you know, I, I know that we draft players in the third and fourth and fifth round from these schools, but really they're first-round choices. And that's where a lot of it's changed today. Now a player like, like from Mississippi Valley State and places like that would be taken in the first round. Then they weren't. So... There were many difficulties, but the violence and the things that went on, and I will give you a quick example. Uh, in 1968, I was at spring practice at Memphis State, and uh, I wanted to stay there two or three days. And I said to the coach, I said, I want to stay an extra day. And the coach said to me, which was very, very unusual, he said, I think you ought to go home. And I said, Coach, should I do something? Are you upset with me? He said, no. He said, Martin Luther King is coming into town today to lead the strike of the garbage men on Friday. And he said, if I were you, I'd go home. So when he said that to me, I went back to the hotel, changed my reservations, got on a plane, flew back to Baltimore, got off, looked up at the television set, and Martin Luther King had been murdered. And uh, that... Many, many things that I saw uh, have stayed with me the rest of my life. But more importantly, I've lived long enough to see the day that the NFL now is 80% African-American. And if you looked in those days, you would think it would never happen. They are many of the things that we cover in there and, and many, many areas where also, as I state in this documentary, I know as as a white person, uh, that what it's like to be in a place where you're the only white person in a black community. So imagine an African-American today in an all-white world. Uh, it gives you a real sense of the values 
and the things that the African-American community has had to live with all of these years. Certainly does. Uh, also, some very funny moments in this documentary. You arrived in Foxborough at the age, I believe, of 32 to become general manager of the Patriots. I uh, had some challenges working with Billy Sullivan, and I was fascinated at the story of uh, Billy Sullivan getting the folks at Schaefer Beer to lend their name to the stadium, but Billy Sullivan cutting so many corners along the way that in a stadium sponsored by a beer company, the toilets didn't work. <laughs> well, I, I mean, there's so many funny things in that in that segment. Eventually, you'll be able to see it, uh, your audience, uh, hopefully regionally and nationally. But actually, the, when I first arrived, the Patriots office was in the left field of Fenway Park. And when they hit baseball, sometimes they would come down through the ceiling and into my <laughs> office. Also, our assistant general manager had his office in the men's room. Uh, there, they, you, you, you can't believe what it was like going from the Colts uh, to the Patriots, even though they had joined the National Football League. The stadium, uh, which was Schaefer Stadium, as you point out, after the beer, uh, I had the architect tell me, this is the architect tell me, he said, he said uh, after it was built, he said it was also already obsolete. We're <laughs> <laughs> moving into this place. The toilets didn't flush. The Board of Health turned us down. The largest traffic jam, in, and I wrote about it in a book on the history of the Patriots called The Night the Carburetors Died. I mean, you, you every, every day I awakened, it was a nightmare to, to go down there. But the greatest was on a Saturday before our opening game against the Giants in a preseason game, I got a call from Sullivan. He said, you better get down here. He said, we got all the owners here. And some of the media, he said, the toilets don't work, so we're going to have a super flush. (laughs) I thought he was was kidding. And uh, so I got down there, and actually, NFL Films has it somewhere. But actually, on the count of three, they got on the loudspeaker system, and they went one, two, (laughs) three, flush. And at that, 30 toilets were flushed to see if it worked, and it finally worked. (laughs) That is a great story. Well, we look forward to seeing all of this in the documentary being put together uh, by Jeff Barnt. Before we let you go, Upton, though, I want to get your thoughts on on this year's Patriots. Uh, Three games left in the regular season. Is this the end for Tom Brady as a Patriot? I believe it is. Uh, But I believe that probably what what will happen is if it doesn't get any better with that kind of three-men relationship, is that I think he'll retire before he'll go play for another team. Uh, that That's what I think will really happen. But more importantly, what has happened here is you, you've seen what can happen. Kraft, Brady, and Belichick have been a, a terrific group over 20 years. They won a lot of championships. But like a lot of relationships, they last a, a long enough time that it begins to become frayed at the edges. Number one, what I see is Belichick did his worst job this year of providing the team with enough offense. Mm. Defense, they're terrific. They're not the greatest, but they're terrific. But offensively, it's not only the receivers, the offensive line, uh, running backs hurt. But I, I really think that Brady way down deep, and that's why you see him morose after some of these games, is that he really feels maybe at the end of his career that they, they – did not provide him with enough talent to really win. 
Uh, they're getting by. But I, I think the confluence of lack of talent, of, of the type of teams they had in the past, kind of Bill maybe thinking he should move on, Brady kind of feeling the pressure, and Kraft not, and that's the key, Rich. When they, when they didn't essentially pick up his option, and, and he said, I want to be free to make a decision at the end, I said, there's the big thing. He's either going to get them over a barrel if they go on and win again, which I don't think they will, or he's going to walk away. But uh, for once, he has the hammer, right. which he never did before. Upton Bell, check out his wonderful book with Ron Borges, present at the creation. Can't wait to see more of this documentary and really excited when uh, all the fans get a chance to see it. It's going to be a wonderful look at the NFL and your family's intimate history with it. Upton, thank you so much, as always, for visiting with us. Great to be on your show, Ritz. Thanks very much. Upton Bell here on Downtown, the podcast. When we return, we head to the Blue Zones with author Dan Butner. And find some recipes that can help you live a longer, healthier life. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Back on Downtown, the podcast. Rich Kimball, Kerry Haskell getting rhapsodic about living to be old men. But wait, aren't we there already, Carrie? <laughs> we are there. I'd like it to be a good old half of the life. Pikers, yeah. I mean, you want to double up on what you've done so far. You might want to see what they do in the blue zones, those areas of the planet that have the highest concentration of centenarians. That's the kind of work Dan Butner has been doing for several years now. And he's got a brand new book, The Blue Zones Kitchen. 100 recipes to help you live to 100. Give a listen here on Downtown. I'm such a big fan of your work for, uh, well, I guess it's been about 15 years now since you teamed up with National Geographic. That, yeah, that's right. Did the first cover story in 2005 on the world's longest lived people and the lessons they offer us for living longer. What's stunning to me in, in reading the first book and the subsequent books as well, are the similarities uh, that exist regardless of the cultures, that there are some things in common that help people live a longer life wherever you live. Yeah, so we found the longest lived people in Okinawa, Japan, Sardinia, Italy, longest lived men, Okinawa, uh, longest live women, and then Ikaria, Greece, a place where there's almost no dementia, Nicoya Peninsula of Costa Rica, and then in America here among the Seventh-day Adventists. And they all move naturally, so they're living in environments that push them into movement. They have vocabulary for purpose. They have sacred daily rituals that help them reverse the stress of everyday living. They tend to belong to a faith. They surround themselves with 
uh, people who encourage healthy behaviors. That's probably one of the biggest things. And then to the point of this new book, The Blue Zones Kitchen, uh, we, I've spent the last three years with uh, photographer David McLean to capture the food tradition that's been around for 500 years that is yielding the longest-lived people on Earth. And it really is a beautiful book as well. The photographs are fantastic. How willing were these people to uh, allow you to come into their homes and watch them prepare their meals? I think if you came in off the street, they wouldn't be very uh, welcoming. But I'm pretty well known in all these uh, villages. I've I've been working with them for 15 years, and they know me, and and uh, I'm very respectful of the culture. And I've I've brought them. Uh, I've celebrated something they're very proud of, which are older people and the legacy of longevity that they're giving the rest of the world. So um, it, it was pretty easy to get in, but once you get in, it took a lot of work to get the photography right. Uh, National Geographic photographer David McLean spent many, many uh, uh, months capturing these images and, and then capturing the recipes. They they don't use measuring cups and teaspoons, so I had to sit there in the kitchen with my laptop computer and capture these, these uh, time-honored recipes by hand. Well, what these people are doing is really what's catching on around the world now as other people become aware of more healthy ways of eating, and it starts with a, a plant-based diet. That's right. I think uh, the, what we're learning from these longest-lived people is is um, converging with science. It's pretty clear that if you're eating meat more than about once a day, your chances for diabetes, heart disease, cancer are uh, double, triple, quadruple that would be if you were on a plant-based diet. And we, we're seeing that the cultures all, traditionally speaking, before the American food culture kind of uh, hit them, they were eating mostly plant-based diet and saving uh, meat and and other animal products for really celebratory, uh, you know, birthdays and weddings and Sunday after church. Otherwise, they're eating pretty much peasant food. But the secret is they know how to make peasant food sing, taste delicious. Interesting also uh, to read that uh, the recommendation is to go easy on fish. And if you are eating fish, uh, really make it small fish. Uh, things like sardines, anchovies, cod. Yeah, so, so it's the, the the food low down on the on the on the food chain. So, so well, most fish now is horribly contaminated. Even farm uh, uh, farm fish, pesticides and fertilizer, and they sort of live in their own uh, uh, feces. So, in blue zones, th- these uh, villages tend to be away from the sea. So, fishing. Well, it didn't make sense for them to walk for a day, fish for a day, and then by the time they get the fish back to their village, it kind of stunk. So fish is really a minor part of the Blue Zones diet. And, um, you know, the, the four pillars of every Blue Zone diet are whole grains, corn, wheat, rice, greens of every kind, nuts, about a handful of nuts a day is probably adding two years of life expectancy. And here was the big uh, surprise for me, beans. Mm. They're eating about a cup of beans a day, and they know how to make those beans absolutely taste delicious, taste just as good as meat or better. And if they're eating about a cup of beans a day, it's probably adding about four years of life expectancy over, over getting your protein from meat. And, and eating those beans often with every meal. 
Yes. Well, maybe not so much for breakfast, but, uh, you know, beautiful minestrone and Icarian stew, a salad with beans in there, uh, lots of different kinds of soups, the uh, the Costa Ricans, Nicoya Peninsula. So it just, you know, it's like a great sushi. So the best cooking are a few ingredients done very well. So imagine these really savory beans that have been slow cooked with onions and garlic and a little bit of peppers with a whole grain of uh, corn tortilla that's been roasted, some hot sauce on there accompanied by some squash, some roasted squash. It, it's it's absolutely fulfilling and delicious. And those three foods together, by the way, create a whole protein. You eat a bean taco with a... With a uh, some squash, you, you're getting as much protein as a three-ounce steak with none of the toxins, cruelty, and, uh, and uh, saturated fats. We're talking with Dan Butner. His new book is The Blue Zone's Kitchen, 100 Recipes to Live to 100. And you mentioned the ingredients, and uh, across the cultures, a very limited number, about less than 20 ingredients, right? That's yeah. That's the point. There, there's actually a theory that when you bombard your body with all kinds of different ingredients, it creates a creates a certain amount of immunal stress, and um, that you know it's it's a weakened immune system that allows older people, especially, to get cancer. So really protecting that immune system over time. With uh, in blue zones, it's seemingly with yeah, twenty simple ingredients that, that you know they'll change from season to season depending what's growing in the garden. But once again, the, the secret is the five hundred years of observed culinary trial and error that has learned how to make the simple pleasant food taste absolutely delicious, and that's that's the zeitgeist I think the blue zones kitchen captures. Here in America, we have a real problem with obesity, and a big part of that is the fact that a lot of people are are drinking their calories. And you point out in the book that in these blue zones, mostly water, that's the beverage of choice, and then only about three other options. Yes, so teas, we see it all in blue zones, coffee, and by the way, Coffee is one of those uh, indulgences, you know, as long as you're drinking it black or with maybe just a little bit of white or soy milk or something, uh, you can drink it with impunity. In fact, it's probably the number one source of antioxidants in the in the American diet, which is more commentary on the American diet than it is on coffee. And then um, and then wine. And and if you're drinking a glass or two of red wine with a meal, you're you're probably doubling or tripling the nutrient absorption and uh, lowering your cortisol levels. And it seems that people who drink a little bit actually have uh, live a little bit longer than people who don't drink at all. Uh, which is not to say if you're not drinking now to start drinking, but if you are drinking a little, uh, um, bottoms up. Can you also talk about the importance of olive oil? Yeah, we've seen, especially in Korea, a relationship, especially in older people, between olive oil consumption and, and longevity. So uh, up to about four tablespoons a day of olive oil. The beauty of olive oil, especially if you're not frying with it, uh, you have these long-chain fatty acids, which are good for you, and um, 
you're having a, a, a antioxidant effect. And I would argue more importantly, they make vegetables taste good. Because at the end of the day, I could tell you that fermented tofu or bitter melon are the healthiest foods in the world. I can make an argument for those. But if you don't like those foods, you're not going to eat them. Uh, fruits and vegetables and nuts uh, well, forget fruits for a second, but if you're adding a little bit of olive oil to bring out the richness, you'll eat them for months or years on end, which which is really a key for making them work for you and adding years to your life. People love their sweets, and one of the commonalities I noticed throughout the book, wherever you went, uh, there were ways of creating sweets that were still healthy. Yeah, so people do eat sweets as a celebratory food. So the average American adds about 22 teaspoons of sugar to their daily diet. In blue zones, it's about seven, and that's usually in the form of honey, uh, which I, I think is the best sweetener out there. And um, that the you know when you're not uh, napalming your taste buds with sweets <laughs> all the time, it takes a lot less to be satisfied with it. I, I need to. Level. I need to try. I've been looking at it several times here. The Chinese five spice banana ice cream with roasted pineapple. That looks amazing. <laughs> you know, a big point. If I had written a book about a restrictive diet that leads to longevity, it may work, but people give up on it. So these these the people in blue zones, they do not deprive themselves. Uh, they they treat themselves, but it's not a treat at every meal. Uh, when you think of it, we eat about a thousand thirty meals a day. I mean, uh, sorry, a year. And uh, for in blue zones, nine hundred of those meals, the meals that get you up in the morning and fuel you through the rest of the day, those are healthy, simple, plant-based diet foods. And then every once in a while, they'll they'll have a celebration where they'll eat some. You know, they'll. There'll be a pig roast, or there'll be a um, they'll make a bunch of sweets. But but uh, really, some of the wisdom is keeping those celebra- celebratory foods for celebrations, not for every every meal. Is it safe to say, Dan, that in the blue zones, eating is more mindful? I hate to say it, but no. Oh, okay. They eat mindlessly. The, the The secret is they set up their their environments are such where the healthy choice is the easy choice. If you ask somebody to be mindful twenty four seven for the rest of their life, they're going to forget. So the key is uh, learning a few plant-based recipes you love, making sure when you go to the grocery store you're buying those ingredients and keeping your pantry stocked with those ingredients so that when you go look for dinner, the, the healthy choice is, is the only available choice. And that's what we see in Blue Zones. How important is it uh, in, in the Blue Zones to eat I, more, more slowly? I think in America we have a tendency to wolf things down, but uh, is that... Is it a different approach in the blue zones? Yes, it takes about 20 minutes for the full feeling to travel from your belly to your brain. And if you're wolfing your food down, you don't know when you've overeaten. So there's a few tricks in blue zones. First of all, uh, they'll say prayer before a meal, put some punctuation between their busyness or hara hachibu, which is what they say in Okinawa to remind them to stop when their stomachs are 80% full. They tend to eat with family. Mm. Uh, you you tend to eat much slower if you're eating with family and friends than you are if you have one hand on the steering wheel or you're eating on the go. And the general rule is they eat breakfast like a king, 
lunch like a prince and dinner like a pauper. And then they stop eating at five or six in the afternoon and they let their digestive systems rest for 14 or 16 hours. And that sort of um, intermittent fasting, which is painless once you get in the habit, that really helps uh, shed the pounds and add the years. Yeah, and it's important to uh, condense those meals into a limited number of hours of the day. Yeah, that's the point here. Uh, in uh, in uh, among the Adventists, uh, one of my favorite centenarians, Ellsworth Wareham. Last I saw him was 103, and he's still driving and mowing his lawn and doing open heart surgery till age 98. Uh, he had he had two meals a day, one at 10 and the other one at four, and that was all the eating he did. And he remained thin and healthy well past age 100. And and uh, I believe there's a connection there. Well, we actually tried the sweet potato black bean burger that's in the book, and that was fantastic. That seems to be a favorite. And by the way, I would argue that sweet potatoes and beans are two of the healthiest foods on earth. And they're they're healthy partially because they're full of fiber and beta carotene, and and uh, they they they're full of protein as well. But also, you can make them taste delicious. And, and taste is really the most important longevity, longevity ingredient there is because when it comes to longevity, there's no superfood or there's no hormone or supplement. Uh, the way to live a long time is figure out how to uh, uh, get some healthy recipes, plant-based ha- re- recipes, and eat and the ones that you'll like so you'll eat them uh, routinely for years and or decades. What, what I think is so wonderful about the, the whole Blue Zones idea and all the work that you've done is that there are no tricks, there are no gimmicks, and, and you feel a difference pretty quickly. When you eat good food, you feel better. So in, in Naples, Florida, it was on the Today Show. It's on the Today Show today, in fact. We took 140 people, uh, largely overweight, middle-aged people, and we put them in groups of five people and just challenged them to eat uh, Blue Zones food, basically potluck, uh, for three months. And uh, across the board, we saw life expectancy uh, jump for the group over 100 years. They lost weight. One woman lost 36 pounds. A couple people reversed prediabetes started to reverse heart disease. The effects happen very quickly when you start eating a plant-based diet, as long as it's not highly processed. The book is called The Blue Zones Kitchen, 100 Recipes to Live to 100. Dan Butner, thank you so much for being with us. We've enjoyed your work for a long time. We wish you continued success. And can I just thank you for such a prepared interview? You were really a delight. Author Dan Butner talking about The Blue Zones Kitchen. Our thanks to Dan, our thanks to Upton Bell, and now... Time for us to get cooking. Take a look at some of those recipes here. Hey, appreciate you joining us on the podcast this week. We remind you, Downtown the Podcast brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We'll see you next time on Downtown.